Hi, I'm your host, Rowan Tonkin, and welcome to Being Planful, the show for FP&A leaders and planning experts. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Being Planful. I'm your host, Rowan Tonkin. Today, I'm joined by Christian Marquez, the CFO of Finstrat Management. Welcome to the show, Christian. Rowan, thank you for having me. Well, I'm really looking forward to this. We had a prep call a couple of days ago, and uh, we came up with some fantastic topics for today's session. Before we jump into some of those topics, though, I just wanted to ask a couple of questions. So number one, can you tell the audience about Finstrat Management and what you guys do and, and your services? And secondly, tell us a little bit about your background to just help everyone understand, you know, your experiences as we dive into some of these topics today. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, so Finstrat Management, uh, we provide uh, uh, fractional chief financial officer-led accounting and finance services, uh, specifically to uh, B2B SaaS, but more broadly venture-backed companies. Uh, we also work with investors, uh, both angels and venture capital. Uh, fulfilling their um, portfolio needs, which includes uh, collection and reporting, as well as fund accounting and administration. Uh, in terms of uh, my background, so um, uh, after I got out of the service, I decided to pursue, pursue a career in um, accounting, finance, and investment analysis. Uh, so um, there is a professional designation called a CFA, Chartered Financial Analyst, Charter Holder, of which um, I achieved back in 2004. So going on now almost two decades, um, uh, accumulating a whole host of uh, experience, registered investment advisors, private business, um, both in the trenches, but leadership positions. Um, but notably, um, and, and something I, I presume you're your listeners would love to hear about. Um, I've had my fair share of wild success and a handful of failures along the way, which I've learned from, uh, but ended up getting hired as a financial analyst at a consulting firm, employee number eight. Uh, over the course of nine years, uh, the company uh, proceeded to grow uh, exponentially to the point that a year after uh, I left, they IPO'd at 4.4 billion. Wow. Um, so, um, right place, right time it was healthcare IT combination of analytics and clinical interventions. Um, I was very fortunate because, uh, I just kept getting responsibility heaped on top of me. Uh, it, it accumulated, it, it culminated with, um, uh, starting an intra-business where, um, I had a material hand in taking this new line from zero to 80 million, uh, ARR in two years. Uh, wore a whole host of hats, uh, product development, sales and marketing, um, uh, professional services. And so with that, had a spring in my step, um, left, co-founded a telemedicine company with uh, two physicians, uh, raised two and a half million pre-revenue. And then unfortunately at the end, and uh, two and a half years from then, uh, closed the doors uh, because we weren't able to bring the company to life. So whole host of great lessons uh, that I that I took with me there and then started Finstrat Management in January 2017. And uh, very fortunate, work with a great group of clients um, as well as staff members. Um, 
we're predominantly through the U.S., so we have an international client in the Middle East. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, these are predominantly founders, people who have um, uh, innovation in their DNA, want to see a, a, a better world. And, you know, being a part of their story to enable them is awesome. Awesome. Well, that's uh, that's going to be great um, uh, topics for, for discussion today, that, that kind of experience. Um, the one thing that you just talked about there was the uh, CFA certification. And I want to dive into that a little bit more. Uh, long-time listeners would have, uh, you know, heard our conversation around the Financial Modeling Institute as well as um, the uh, Financial Planning and Analyst Certification from AFP. Uh, CFA is some one that many may not be familiar with. Can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, you've held that designation for, for a while now. Um, can you talk about a little bit about the, the actual certification itself? And then uh, number two, how that's helped you in in those kind of you know what it was a rapidly growing startup, um, and then you know now helping manage uh, a lot of these processes for for your clients. So, uh, uh, CFA charter holders been around since uh, before I was born, um, and uh, international designation um, uh, on par with an MBA in finance um three exams uh the course material is heavy emphasis on portfolio management so think equities bonds derivatives uh, but those in the space know that um accounting uh which is part of the curriculum is a heavy dependency on analog you know running a business but also analyzing it mm -hmm. so today you'll find uh, cfa charter holders um occupying uh, CFO position for Fortune 1000 companies, uh, running hedge funds, mutual funds, uh, independent advisors. And, and it's the designation has made a name for itself because the three exams pass rates are historically below 50%. Mm -hmm. uh, in addition, at least when I was taking it, they were only offering each exam once a year. And if you didn't pass, you had to wait. Um, I understand that since changed, but um, nevertheless, it, it is a great um, professional designation for someone who's dedicated to the craft of investment analysis, but in the weeds as it pertains to the topics I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And so I, I get asked, you know, Christian, what do you think? MBA, CFA, CPA. Um, uh, I admit I'm biased. <laughs> But I follow my own advice. Um, you know, I, I I think in terms of um, what am I going to learn? What's my price point? Uh, but also uh, supply and demand. And so, um, you know, all an investment for a CFA, presuming you pass each exam the first time, is going to be less than five grand. Uh, you know, as compared to an MBA, depending on what school you go to, can be high five, if not six figures. Yeah. Um. Because of the pass rates, there's also a smaller pool of CFA charter holders. And for that reason, a lot of employers recognize it. And especially in my space, we work with venture capital firms um, and some, but not all uh, founders acknowledge, recognize and acknowledge the designation and realize that they're, they're working with someone who's dedicated to their craft because of those low pass rates. 
Um, so anyway, long way of saying big endorsement from me. If you're yeah. you're considering uh, a career in accounting or finance and investment analysis, I'd encourage you to to strongly look at at getting a charter. And, and so let's let's say you already you know you've you've been a big four accountant and you've done your your degree in in finance or business administration and uh, you know then you make the world to operator and you jump into maybe an FPNO role, which we hear a lot of our listeners um, have done. What would they get from, from this designate, not necessarily from the designation, but from the learnings that they would then be able to apply immediately for their employer, like right now? It's a great question. So um, I think as the body of knowledge is a tool and mm. like any tool, you have to ask the question, well, to what end? Um, I personally always like to understand what my destination is and work backwards. Uh, and in this case, if you think of the profession, you're really seeking to answer the question, you know, what's our strategy? Mm -hmm. Try to be as objective as possible and eliminate as many cognitive biases that we bring into the table as, as people. Yeah. Um, one of the ways to do that is just numbers. Um, now I, I acknowledge that I can create a forecast that says anything, but presuming that it, you're utilizing benchmarks and you're 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 using you know reasonable growth rates, whether it's revenue or expense, um, you know understanding uh, accounting, understanding how you can leverage equity or debt um, in your favor, mm -hmm. those, you know those are assets in my opinion. And I say that very practically, having used it, having served as a client-facing fractional uh, mm -hmm. CFO. And so, um, you know, so we'll build forecasts for our clients. And, um, you know, we start having conversations along the lines of, well, you know, what would you like to exit at? What are the multiples in the marketplace? Um, how is your company um, legally structured to help us better understand what your tax liability is going to be? Uh, and then let's back into what a trajectory needs to look like, factoring you know realistic assumptions to get there. And the 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 coursework lends itself directly to what mm -hmm. I'm describing. And um, you know again it. I hate to say it, it helps open doors. Yeah. It does. Uh, that job I got as, as the employee number eight of the consulting firm was specifically dependent on me passing the third and final exam, which I did before they extended me an offer. Uh, but once I was in and I was given the role, I was able to apply what I had learned. And I continue to do so, you know, 20 years later. Yeah, I think that's the... And so is there an ongoing commitment for you now? Like, obviously, you know, 20 years ago, uh, what's the what's the ongoing commitment to continue to hold your designation? Yeah, so there's a um, uh, continuing education, like many professional designations, and um, world's evolving. And there was no crypto back in 2004. Um, but it's an asset class. Yeah. And I've been asked questions, you know, how does crypto factor into treasury management? And, um, you know, it's, it's a reasonable question. And, um, and so a long way saying that the you know, world evolves. And so it's, I think it's the responsibility of any professional uh, to stay uh, abreast of development. Yeah. Oh, awesome. So for those uh, considering uh, the CFA designation, 
from what Christian just said, you're going to get a ton of value. Uh, you're going to open a ton of doors. Uh, and probably, I'm sure, Christian, it helps in the in the personal side of evaluating uh, evaluating investments. <laughs> and uh, you know, even if it's like just not only helping your company but helping yourself, I'm sure. Um, absolutely. So, um, coincidentally, favorite subject. You know, I, I love talking about. Uh, business, how do you grow them, generate enterprise value, monetize them? Um, uh, we're very fortunate. Uh, we have older kids. Uh, our son uh, started his own business last year after he graduated from college. He does construction. Uh, and I'm very grateful to be able to pass along a lot of the lessons that I've accumulated mm -hmm. over the years to him and watch him succeed. Um, shout out to our son, but I mean, his he got to a million in trailing 12 month revenue faster than I did. Uh, <laughs> but very practically, I mean, yeah. there's a degree of formula uh, to this. And so I know when we were doing our, our pre-podcast, you know, I, I get asked, so there's some, there's some questions I will get asked. And one of the big ones is, um, you know, how do you transition from employee to business owner? Mm. And the answer to that question is, well, it depends, but it's also, I'll acknowledge that it's difficult depending on your age. And so case in point, um, you know, if, if someone has a uh, responsibility of a family to include car payments, a mortgage, education, maybe their own educational um, commitment, mm -hmm. um, you know, said another way, those are all fixed obligations. <laughs> they look like debt. Apparently. Yeah. Um, you still have to make those payments. They're not going to put a pause just because you decide to to start a business and you need some time to create a cash flow. So, long way of saying is that the the risk, um, the risk uh, uh, profile changes as you get older. If you're not as fortunate to you know have a significant amount of money uh, socked away in the bank, and so um, you know my answer is start young, as young as you can, similar to my son. Um, because this concept of risk is really important to uh, investment uh, or you know how you apply it yourself. And you think about it, capital's finite, time is finite. Mm -hmm. And while we all like having grand slams, you have to appreciate that um, you know the the harder you swing, potentially, the more risk you take. Now that's fine, but you know we live in a world of consequences. And so if you're going to fail, you know, I would pose a question, would you rather fail at 24 when you maybe have rent and a car payment? Or would you rather fail at 54 when, you know, you have a lot less of your time left in this world, let alone capital? Um, uh, and who knows the extent that that influences the decisions you make knowing you have a lot more at risk. Um, and so, you know, today when I speak with um, especially uh, people in their 20s, if you have an itch to create something, it's a great time to do it mm -hmm. uh, because you also have a lot more energy, <laughs> presumably a little bit more time than someone who's married with kids. Um, and so big encouragement for me to really do it then and not later. Now, that said, I also acknowledge that someone who starts their business in their 20s is going to have less options necessarily from a professional services perspective than if you're starting it in your 30s, 40s, or 50s, because clients are looking for expertise. Mm -hmm. In the case of my son, 
he's in construction and he's been swinging a hammer for six years prior to graduation. And so he had accumulated a tremendous amount of uh, experience leading up to that time. But if he had gone out and wanted to start an investment analysis firm like banking, I mean, he, you know, without a pedigree, he would, yeah. he would be, he'd be struggling. And so, um, but there's a whole host of options available. I'd say really the big one that I hone in on and I, and we, and all of our fractional CFOs deal with this today, it's cash is king. Um, especially with it, given our current interest rate environment, mm-hmm. the world has changed for a very long time in the VC backspace. The mantra was, um, the money will be there tomorrow. So spend today. And what not all, but many companies are finding out is that's no longer the case. And so, uh, plans that were put in place that didn't include becoming profitable, are now being reassessed mm-hmm. um, so that they can get to the point um, where they don't have a dependency on outside financing, whether that's debt uh, or equity. And so um, that concept, I would argue, applies whether you're starting a B2B SaaS company or you're starting a construction company. It's, you know, how much should you charge? And I'm happy to talk about that as well. Um, but really understanding your costs. As a firm, that's where we come in. Um, we make sure that um, financials are accurate so that there can be confidence in answering that question. Um, but I would encourage anyone today to get to at least break even, if not you know, 10% net margins. Obviously, it depends on what you're doing. But it then starts to open up a whole host of options uh, once you're in a position that you're generating positive cash flow. Yeah, that that optionality, I think, is is really important. And something that you talked about more on a career level um, was the concept of taking risks earlier. How, um, how did you find that that CFA designation, which, you know, it doesn't sound like too much of a risk if you've got someone telling you, if you pass, you get a job, Um but then how did that lend itself throughout your career to taking bigger risks earlier on? Um, sounds like you were given a lot of responsibility in that kind of major phase of growth of that, that uh, medical uh, company that you're at. Um, can you talk a little bit kind of in, in context of the CFA certification, what you learned there? So that many of our listeners who are at that inflection point of their careers, you know, they're trying to figure out how do I go become a CEO, CFO, or maybe a maybe they want to become fractional too in future and, and run their own system. How would they think about going and taking some of those bets and applying it to to their careers today? Yeah. So the I think analogy would be is um, you know, if if we were if we were at the range with our rifle, it's a difference between um taking our time looking down the scope and ensuring that uh we were going through the appropriate motions versus shooting from the hip mm-hmm. um because in either instance you may hit your target but um when you take when you're when you're um when your measures are calculated your odds are higher right and, I, and i'm sure there's no shortage of people out there who will give me or give us definitions of what risk is but the way i think about it is is just What's the probability of failure? 
-hmm. you know, is it, is it high or low to oversimplify it? And so to answer that question is where the value of a charter comes in. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll oversimplify it again, but let's just say there's two categories of analysis, fundamental and technical. So fundamental would be, you know, help me understand um, the environment and the environment can be macro. Um, how does interest, for example, how do interest rates influence what I'm doing? Uh, it can be micro, help me understand the, the deep tech space or the ag tech space, whatever space I operate in really, really well. Then you can understand the company, management, the product, um, and even down to technically to the philosophy of how the company is run such that it manifests itself in a strategy. And so um, you get investors like Warren Buffett, mm -hmm. whose higher promise premise is fundamental um, and that they've created rules for themselves as to what's an acceptable amount of risk to take relative to what they're going to spend on something. That same philosophy applies to starting construction business. B2B SaaS business, frankly, you know, undertaking a CFA, like understanding, okay, what's the time commitment? Mm -hmm. uh, what's my passion for this? Um, you know, what's my budget relative to the cost? Um, and um, do I feel like I can come up with a sh uh, an acceptable strategy to study for what is a, a enormous amount of material in a limited amount of time frame? On the technical side, a little bit different. Um, so in the world of investing, technicals are really, you know, a function of charts. Uh, you're looking at price, you're looking at, uh, derivatives of price, like stochastics, relative strength index, um, indicators to answer the question, you know, does this stock have a long way to go? Um, or is it going to turn around? Um, you know, there are parallels in the business world, um, understanding what you're going to charge, what your competitors are charging, Back to understanding your costs. Um, I mean, I'd argue those are the parallels. And um, I don't want to suggest, though, that you overanalyze. You know, it's the old paralysis by analysis. And I, my experience has been that's a thing, too. Sometimes I think there's a tremendous value in just making a decision and then, you know, changing course if you realize you were mistaken. Um, but yeah, the, the spirit of this is really. Um, being calculated and understanding what it is you're doing before you place a bet or pull yeah, yeah that, that's super helpful I think uh, having that system of making those initial calculations right like uh, you know a lot of folks will just go to a spreadsheet and uh, or a model of some description and say all right well how do I get from A to B here's how I get there and they don't step back and apply some sort of logic or system to say, you know, is this achievable? How can I get there? What's the risk levels? Why are we doing, you know? Like, and and so to me, it sounds like they're the fundamentals that you learn, which is here are all the assumptions, here's the pathways, and then here are the options that I get to to navigate that situation. Is is that fair to say? It is. And, yeah. and I'll, throw, I'll throw one caveat out there if there's any listeners who've said well i know so and so they're widely successful they don't do any of that stuff um i get it um i would say um you know probability isn't it is a 
uh, an investor and someone in accounting and finance best friend. And, um, you know, for those, myself included, who originally, you know, just took probs and stats and really didn't apply themselves, I would encourage to set aside some time to revisit the subject. Um, because if, if you really, if you say, if you have a really large sample, you know, in the, in the U S you know, over, you know, over 300 million people, and we can dissect it to how many business owners there are, but you have to appreciate is that there will be people who will be wildly successful just by the sheer number of people mm-hmm. yeah. that there are out there. And so will there be people who, who consistently generate success or great returns? Yes. Does that mean though, that they're necessarily have the secret sauce or are extremely disciplined or have it all figured out? They exist, but the number is really small and don't be convinced everyone's in that bucket. Yeah, I think it comes back to uh, something I talk a lot about uh, in the intersection of finance and marketing is, you know, there are playbooks out there that generate predictability, right? And that's what a lot of folks are looking for, right? Finance have great predictable playbooks around how to run a B2B SaaS company and the old playbook is is no longer in play, Um and marketers, we have playbooks around how to run a great campaign and, and why do we love those playbooks? It's because they're predictable. We know kind of what sort of rate of return we're, we're expected to get based on, you know, the inputs going in. Um, does that mean they're the only playbooks? No, someone could throw a trick play in there and it could come off, right? And that's that's great, good for them. Uh, but that's not the way to do it repeatedly and do it with a high level of predictability. And um, and so I, I love the idea of you know getting those fundamentals of here's how I evaluate these decisions and can consistently apply that through all aspects because of the business. Um, we talk a lot on the podcast uh, to FBNA professionals about how to become a better business partner to the business. And uh, maybe you could help shed some light on how a CFA designation can help you do that. And, and to me, my quick interpretation from our conversation is, well, you'll just help someone evaluate the risk of their decision on a more frequent and predictable basis. Is that fair to say? And in, in the context of different tools that are available. And yeah. so, so I agree with your 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 assessment. I would I'd add to it by saying, you know, a lot of companies ask the question: Should I get a debt facility? Should I do a priced equity round? Um, and the idea is, if you have an opportunity on your hands and you had additional capital, can you magnify um, the growth of your company? Now, albeit it comes at, in the case of equity. Uh, the cost of dilution. Mm-hmm. Um, in the case of debt, it comes in the case of additional future cash flow. You're effectively borrowing from the future mm-hmm. um, at a cost because there's going to be interest uh, for the risk that the lender takes by giving you their money. And so one of the questions we help answer is, all right, do you do debt? Do you do a price equity round or anything? And there are consequences to those answers, and so um, or the decision that you make, and where a value of a, a CFO, whether they have a CFA charter or not, is helping answer that question. Yeah. And so you have to look at the current company cash profile. You have to look at your the owner's current uh, ownership percentage. 
Um, how much of the company would you be willing to sell at what valuation? And um, I mean, we can devote an entire podcast unpacking uh, yeah. some of these topics. Um, but you know, that's that's where uh, someone with CFO experience really can add value. Um, and I've, you know, I hate to say I've we've onboarded clients who had been taken advantage of by unscrupulous investors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, would would bake in terms within a convertible note that, you know, had they been working with us at the time, we would never have told them to agree to. Um, and they ended up, you know, experiencing material dilution. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's a combination of um, risk, you know, how bad do you need, how, how big is the opportunity? How bad do you need the money? Um, and what are the consequences um, of pursuing different options? And uh, let's let's keep going on the element of risk right now. I think, uh, you know, it would be weird to not have a podcast and talk about generative AI or AI uh, <laughs> in this current moment. And so as, as you look at that world, how do you see that playing a part in, in our evaluation of risk? I mean, it, it poses its own risks unto itself, but how are you... Um, as a CFA looking at leveraging those types of tools to help you, um, you know, maybe, maybe find better evaluations faster or more predictably. Um, so let me, let me start by saying I'm not an expert in AI, but like many professionals right now, I've been devoting time to better understanding the subject because it's front and center. And I think anyone would be naive to say it's not going to be a significant aspect of business for the decades to come, if you know, for the rest of history. Yeah. Um, I think one of the most important things that we can start is just how does AI work? And so AI, in simplest terms, re- requires data sets to learn from. Mm-hmm. And so on the surface, you can say, okay, well, I understand that. Um, But I think it's a really important to answer the question, well, what is your data set? Um, Because I'll oversimplify it and say, if my sample set was very small as compared to enormous, you're going to get a degree of bias the smaller that sample set is. And so for your listeners who've been following AI, you may have heard references to hallucinations which is a, you know, another way of saying errors in the results that um, AI uh, tools have been providing. And it's important um, because if, you know, to answer your question is that if I want to use AI, which arguably has infinite more com- uh, computational uh, power than any one individual, um, that's great. But what is it using to make its determinations? And my sense is that it really depends on what's the question that's being answered because depending on the question is going to dictate the data set. So I'll give you an example. Um, I mentioned that we were doing uh, healthcare IT. It was a combination of predictive analytics and clinical interventions. Mm-hmm. Our data sets at the time that we were using to uh, predict which um, healthcare plan members were going to receive certain uh, types of care was 
based on information that was resident either with the health plan or their claims data. For those of you who are familiar with healthcare IT, it's very limited. Like it, it doesn't say, oh, you know, uh, you know, Rowan exercises religiously. He goes to bed, um, you know, every night at 11 p.m. You know, he takes his AG1 in the morning. Um, you know, he has, uh, you know, this phenomenal relationship with his spouse and these kids and he, all of these variables that absolutely contribute to um, health outcomes as demonstrated by a whole host of independent researchers. But what do we, what do we do in, in lieu of that? We have a zip code that's in there. Yeah. And the zip code becomes a proxy for, for how healthy or healthy you may or may not be. And so, okay, well, what does the zip code do? Well, if you live in one of the wealthiest um, neighborhoods in the country, you know, like Greenwich, Connecticut, you know, as compared to, I'm not going to pick on any states, but let's just say a zip code um, where that's, you know, they're in a, the bottom quartile. The expectation is, is you have a lot more means available to you. You may have a higher education, so you understand the consequences of not taking care of yourself. And so we should have different expectations. But you and I know that's not an absolute. I mean, just because yeah. you live in Greenwich, Connecticut, not to pick on them, um, you know, you, you may not have the healthiest lifestyle. So you can have the most sophisticated AI model on the planet, but if your data set doesn't include the level of information that you're seeking to answer, it doesn't matter. And so really a question becomes as well, who owns those data sets? Where are they coming from? What are the sensors that are physical sensors or the, even the software code that's used to pick up on behavior? And then can you make that something that can be then used to teach uh, an AI model to learn off of. Um, and so I, I think that's really important. I think, again, I would say, depending on the question we're seeking to answer is going to dictate how near or far we are away to getting to a point where um, we can rely on artificial intelligence to a high degree of confidence. Now, between now and then, is this, am I suggesting that we don't? No, I just think you have to understand is that there are risks because the data is limited, and you have to you have to marry that against common sense and maybe other other sources of information to include personal experience, despite us being, you know, having flaws in our own decision making because of our own cognitive biases. And uh, you know, there's biases that have been uh, potentially written into some of a the the collection of that data, <laughs> right? Like uh, the you know the people that can afford the the sensors and the data collection of you know their own personal biometrics data. Not everyone can afford that, so it might just generally be a healthier population based on the affordability of that data, right? Um, so it's a it's an interesting time. I think the the other thing that I would say to folks is be really specific about the AI that you're talking about. Um, you know, mathematical AI or numeric AI has been around forever and predictive algorithms and predictive forecasting models. Uh, that's just math, really. Um, a lot of what's being talked about right now is generative AI, turning that, you know, human text and human language into um, 
into something mathematical, something programmatical or narrative based. And, and that's where some of the challenges will come from is because they're pulling from data sets that may not be relevant to you or to your industry or, or to your uh, use case, depending on what you're trying to do with it. But but math will always be math and uh, underlying all of that, the foundational data is always going to be determinant of whether the model performs or not. Yeah, and and I've I've come across um, so everyone I presume well, I you I presume your, your listeners who are familiar with AI understand this concept of just being a prompt engineer. Yeah, uh, which may have already fallen by the wayside, but basically the idea is you know how well can, are you or how good a job can you do at structuring the questions you pose mm-hmm. to answer. And I've actually seen some pretty great examples where you can say. Um, you know, what's one plus one, and then give me this uh, support as to where you're pulling your answer from. And so, um, you know, just an example, but really, we're going to see a continued evolution in terms of the integrity of the responses that we're getting. Um, And we're only a year into this, uh, since uh, OpenAI released its first iteration of ChatGPT. Could you imagine 10 years from now? yeah, I mean, I, I would tell you that anything that's in structured data will probably um, progress the quickest and anything that's in unstructured data will take a little bit longer, but it will come. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Christian, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. I, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk us through. Um, I, I hope our listeners have learned a lot about, you know, the CFA designation, how it can apply to them how Christian's been able to use it in his career to, to understand some of these core concepts. And uh, we really appreciate you and your time. So thank you, Christian. Rowan, my pleasure. Um, and if, uh, if, you know, as a courtesy of your listeners, um, you know, happy to extend uh, a free 30 minute consultation uh, with one of our fractional CFOs, if they have any questions about their business that they like to run by us. Uh, simply go to um, our website on our contact us page. The website's uh, fin, F-I-N, strat, S-T-R-A-T, and then M-G-M-T, short for management.com. And uh, just mention that uh, you you heard us, uh, heard the two of us on your, your podcast and happy to make some time available for your listeners. That's really, uh, really helpful. So folks, uh, feel free to go over there. That's fin, strat, management, M-G-M-T. Uh, So thank you, Christian. And uh, thank you to our listeners. Uh, Hope to see you soon. Take care. Make sure you hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for stopping by.